Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. Uh, we've got lots to tell you today and some exclusive news and as always you'll be hearing from Ray Harryhausen himself. I'm John Walsh and I'm a trustee of the foundation and as always I'm joined by our brilliant collections manager Connor Heaney. Hello Connor. Hello John, it's a pleasure to be back recording episode 21 um, during quite an action-packed time with the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Yes indeed, yeah we've had, um, if you're listening to this um, early September then you may have come along to the BFI screening of Harryhausen the movie posters at the BFI in London where Richard Hollis uh, showed an exclusive preview of his book in advance of publication and showed uh, two very special films, one of which had never been seen outside the border Scottish TV region since the 1960s. Um, you came along, Connor. What, what did you think of that border television programme? No, that was something special because I was thinking about this afterwards. I think that might be the earliest recording that I've heard of Ray speaking at any great length about his films, way back in 1969, just following the release of The Valley of Guanji. And uh, I was lucky enough to be sitting next to Ray's daughter, Vanessa Harryhausen, who also came to the event, and uh, she also like, she was racking her brains afterwards. It was a it was a long time ago that this uh, documentary or this TV show was recorded, and uh, quite interesting to see uh, a younger Ray discussing his work in the middle of his career, not necessarily looking back, but right in the midst of a, a, a series of classic films and describing his techniques. Absolutely, it was called "The Man Who Makes Monsters." And it was a, a one hour or a half hour, sorry, a half hour program by ICV Region Border Television, which is the Scottish um, area. And uh, it was sort of a this is well, this is the description that the BFI gives it: a charming, informal, clip-heavy interview with Ray Harryhausen about his illustrious career and his latest movie, The Valley of Guanji. So it kind of tells you, um, you know, where in Ray's sort of timeline it's all set, but. Um, it's 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 wonderful because um, the interviewer, I think, in some places is a bit cheeky and asks us a few kind of pointed questions in the way that local news might. And it has the look and feel of a local news programme with no disrespect to local news. Um, it's wonderful and it's terrific that um, the BFI have it. So Dick Fiddy, who's in charge of all of these sort of missing, believed, wiped programmes at the BFI, um, hosted the events and uh, under the sort of the direction of Justin Johnson, the program manager. And it's it's marvellous. You know, I'm hoping that the foundation may be able to access either some or all of the program and we can bring you maybe a clip or, or perhaps the whole program at some point in the future, because in terms of visual history, in terms of oral history, in terms of Ray's media timeline, it's a real big tick for us at the foundation. I'd never seen it before. I'd heard of it. Um, and this is why the BFI is um, is such a, uh, a sort of jewel in the crown when it comes to media, because we're going to have a little chat later on this episode about lost Harryhausen um, materials. This is fabulous, and for it to, to have survived as well. Um, I, I want to see more of this, Connor, don't you? More, more sort of lost Harryhausen. Well, this is, this is perfect. This is the kind of thing that fans get in touch about, because... Often people will have vague memories of seeing Ray on the television and they'll say, I'm sure I saw Ray in the 1960s at some point on a black and white television show being interviewed. And obviously at our end, without the BFI, it would be quite hard to, to track down and, and verify these things and to, to find out information about these programmes that would otherwise be lost to history. So uh, a wonderful job by the BFI. And again, it just goes to show you should save everything because it will be of great interest one day. Absolutely. Um, then they showed my film next, which I had no influence over. They asked. So my uh, film school documentary, Ray Harryhausen, Movement Into Life, was played. 
And uh, it was marvellous to see it played now that it's been fully restored. And right after Ray's black and white appearance on board of television, it made it shine all the more brightly. Um, so thank you, BFI, for, for allowing me that tiny moment in the spotlight. And uh, and Richard Hollis's book, Connor, was was up next. Um, you, you've seen my documentary before, of course. Is it the first time you've seen it with that sort of um, cinema-level projection? Yes, I think so. We often... Uh... Your, your your documentary gets screened at presentations that we make and at events that we partake in but obviously the BFI is a, a custom cinema so to see it on the big screen at that at that scale was uh, was very interesting and again Vanessa was there too and she commented that that's the first time she'd seen it on, on any kind of big screen so it was very enjoyable for her as well and the, yeah the two the two films sort of topped and tailed each other nicely different stages of Ray's career and then, of course, it was a presentation by Richard Hollis, an exclusive first look inside the, the book. Now, myself and Connor, of course, have seen it in some detail. But Connor, to see those images on the big screen again, it, it seemed quite different, didn't it? They were, they, were, they were really quite glorious. Well, I thought I knew a lot about uh, Ray Harryhausen posters, given all the hard work that we've all put in over the last year or so to prepare images for Richard's wonderful book. But he was so informative, uh, going into the detail behind the artwork for all of these great films and the artists involved too. And the reasons why artwork from around the world or during different eras could potentially be different and um, it was a very in-depth exploration of some of his highlights from the book. Fascinating to see them on the big screen, having these stylistic differences explained by an expert um, was, was an incredibly worthwhile experience and uh, I recommend anybody who didn't make it to, to get hold of the book and have a look at Richard's in-depth analysis of artworks throughout the, the 20th century for Ray Harryhausen. And congratulations to the, the proud winner of the book. Richard posed a very difficult film poster related question and somebody won a copy. Um, if you didn't make it down to the BFI for that, you may be interested to know of something else, something, well, bigger coming up. Um, again in London, this time on the 8th of September. Um, Richard Hollis will be signing copies, first edition copies of his Harry House and the Movie poster book at the Forbidden Planets Megastore on Shaftesbury Avenue. And that's on Saturday, the 8th of September from 12 noon. And now, Richard, I think it's only going to be signing for one hour. So if you want to get your book signed, you do need to get down there before 12 to start queuing. Um, we'll be there from the foundation as well. I'll be around. So if you want to come and say hello. Um, and then that follows, we're in partnership here with Titan Books, Forbidden Planet and Regent Street Cinema, which is London's oldest cinema and, and one of its biggest for a very special world premiere screening of the DCP 2K transfer of First Men in the Moon in its full anamorphic widescreen aspects with 5.1 stereo sound. So... That's quite an afternoon. That starts at three o'clock at the Regent Street Cinema on the 8th of September. You can book online now if you want to get a ticket or two, and I'd strongly recommend it. I'll be presenting an exclusive presentation from the foundation. Um, we may have a special guest or two from the film itself. Um, Terry Marison, who is an actor who appeared as a child in the original film, will be joining the audience, and I'm hoping to get Terry on stage. And also Richard Hollis will be presenting his uh, BFI presentation on the poster book afterwards. So anyone who missed it there at BFI will get a chance to see it. And we may have another book to give away once it's not all sold out. So that's quite special, Connor, isn't it? Well, yes, because I think for, for fans of Ray Harryhausen, these screenings um, are more than just, just film screenings. They tend to turn into sort of many Harryhausen conventions. So last week at the BFI... All sorts of interesting people were there. Mike Hankin, the author of the Master of the Magic series. Andy Johnston and Mark Mostyn, who are two of the Foundation's photographer. Um, Alan Friswell, our conservator, alongside, obviously, John and myself, and Vanessa Harryhausen, Carly Munro. So all of these people related to Ray's work were there, and it turns into a huge conversation after the film because fans get to, to chat to one another and chat to us, and it will be the same at uh, the Regent Street Cinema on the 8th of September. You'll be able to chat to John, you'll be able to chat to people who were actually in the film, as well as asking Richard questions about his new book and, and get a signed copy. So 
it'll be a mini event, a Harryhausen day in its own right, and it's not to be missed. And just a shout out to some other names, Neil Pettigrew, who is a bit of an expert in this field and a published author on stop motion animation, um, was there because he contributed posters to the book, as did Simon Greetham and his son Rowan Greetham, who'd, who'd contributed posters from their private collection to the um, Richard Hollis book. And it really has been a wonderful exercise in bringing together sort of uh, well-known authors like Mike Hankin and Neil Pettigrew with, you know, enthusiastic, serious collectors like uh, Simon and Rowan Greetham. Um, so hopefully some of those folks will be at the Regent Street Cinema. And if you'd like to be involved in the book, you think you have something you could uh, contribute, we'll be telling you a little bit later in this episode what's coming up next. And perhaps you can contribute get a free copy of the book and have your name on the printed page. Um, but next, I think we're going to talk about all things summery, Connor, whilst people were baking in 35 degree heats here in London and no doubt in Scotland. Um, we were having a cooler time with, with a mere sort of 28 degree heat in, uh, in San Diego, weren't we? That's right. We headed along to the San Diego Comic-Con 2018 uh, and made a a number of presentations on July the 20th. Now, I'm sure everybody knows about San Diego Comic-Con. It's the the biggest event in the world for for film, for genre entertainment, for for comics, for for everything under the sun related to uh, fantasy and science fiction. And of course, uh, very strong links to Ray Harryhausen. Ray was there a number of times throughout his life. Um, including appearances with his good friend Ray Bradbury, who was actually at the first ever Comic-Con 40 years ago. So, strong links, and it was an honour to be there representing Ray and speaking to some of Ray's Californian fans. Absolutely, and we got a chance to talk. So, we were given the honour of having a panel at San Diego Comic-Con, so no mean feat to publicly speak in front of a large audience. And I was up first with my talk, Ray Harryhausen and me. And here's a, here's a brief excerpt. Now, let me hand you over to John Walsh for his presentation. Ray Harryhausen and me. Hello, thank you all for coming. Now, let's get this, this show started. This is brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Now, Ray Harryhausen and me, I'm the me here on the right hand side. <laughs> Can you believe it? In, in 1989 I shot this, and it was released in 1990. I was a student at the London Film School, I was 18, and I look as if I'm auditioning for Depeche Mode. <laughs> so, a quick show of hands, who here has heard of Ray Harryhouse? Sadly, when Ray died in May 2013, this is what George Lucas said. It would likely have been no Star Wars without Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen's inspiration goes with us forever, Steve Spielberg. Without Ray Harryhausen's influence, Lord of the Rings would never have been made, not by me at least, says Peter Jackson. To me, he was the guy that not only inspired me, but inspired almost any animator, says Tim Burson. Phil Tippett, who we know as a, a, almost the, the inheritor of the Harryhausen crowd, these wonderful animations for the George Lucas films. You know, I'm always saying to the guys I work with on computer graphics, do we like Ray Harryhausen? <laughs> and perhaps this is the funniest and the most poignant. What we do now digitally with computers, radio, and digitally long before, but without computers. So there you go, Connor. Quite a good reaction there from um, from the crowds. You also followed by um, by giving us a talk as well. What what was your talk about? Well, I thought it would be interesting to give some of Ray's fans uh, an insight into the work that the foundation has, has been carrying out over the last few years. So within the archive, there are 50,000 items and we're working tirelessly, not only to catalogue the collection, but to preserve and promote the collection for future generations. Now, there were some um, exclusive looks at the treasures that are held within. And I think a lot of people think that they, they know everything that there is to know about Ray and his work. But we're uncovering new material every single day, which would 
which is just fascinating, including, as we've mentioned on this podcast before, the lost John Barry score for Clash of the Titans, uh, pieces of race collection that were long thought lost, such as the original Trog's Horn from Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger and various other sculptures that he made over the years. So we took a an in-depth look at some of the, the highlights that we've undertaken over the last few years, as well as looking into Alan Friswell's incredible restoration work. Alan is there to restore and ensure that the creatures are safe for travel around the world and that fans can enjoy them on display in museums and galleries. Now, a big uh, thank you to um, Elizabeth Reams and Steve Robes, who came along, they're filmmakers and, uh, and writers, they came along and covered the event for us and did some wonderful photography and videography and uh, and also Greg Coolan, who's working with me on my new book, which I teased you all about at the opening. Um, Greg is really one of those great people who has kept pieces of Hollywood that would have otherwise been maybe discarded or thrown away. So he has a vast, vast collection, uh, some of which is Ray Harryhausen related. And uh, we caught up with Greg and with Elizabeth. And here is just a little bit of, of what both of them said to us about Comic-Con about their collections and about the influence that Ray had on their lives. These eyes peer out through time, through space, to a land beyond imagination. Elizabeth Reams, hello. Hello. Can you tell us a little bit about your history as a Ray Harryhausen fan? Sure, I can tell you a little bit. There's a lot of history. Um, it all started when my father, you know, he raised me on black and white sci-fi and horror f- films um, against my mother's request, but it is what it is. And she also raised me on, like, foreign movies, so it was kind of like this odd combination of some weird French foreign films and then black and white, really, you know, kind of B-movie type movies. And, um, and um, it really started with sort of seeing the stop-motion animation of his work in certain films here and there and I didn't know why but I was riveted by it and I started noticing how certain filmmakers were you know using his work or the stop-motion aspect of it and the whole visual production value of it was much more impressive to me because it was more real than like special effects because special effects for me at my age was more like you know, I could go play a video game or I could go, you know, read a comic or something like that. But seeing something visually that affects me emotionally, um, it really had to do with something that it looked like I could touch. And that really stimulated my imagination. And so Ray Harryhausen's films did that for me tremendously as a young child. Um, and I remember uh, just really enjoying, you know, I remember Sinbad on the Eye of the Tiger. The tiger stayed with me for, for, not, for weeks, you know, thinking about that tiger and what it meant. Uh, Zenobia and, you know, the Minotaur. Um, every, there's, a, there's a certain type of subtle passion in his uh, characters that he creates, I feel, in all of his films. So when I see, like, him putting the work into how they move, and I know how he, how he studied them in the past, but the way that they move, it's not necessarily like the soulless creature that he's created. It actually has a very intense unknown purpose compared to the characters that are around him. So, such as uh, Trog, who is actually one of my favorites, um, and uh, I love analyzing that character and coming writing like backgrounds on this character of like, what did he think when he saw Jane Seymour, and why is he has this innate protection for her you know I mean where did that come from so it's more of like most of the characters that he's created I always it stimulates my imagination much more than an actual actor being in the film and going well this is who I am and this is what I'm doing because there's an unknown to his characters that we can't touch or like why is this character that he's created doing this we don't know but we love it and it really stimulates our minds so I've been a fan of of all of his work for ever since and when your dad introduced you to the films was it very much these are Ray Harryhausen films and we're going to watch them all or was it more like just films that he happened to enjoy then that you start to realise that the same man was behind them all? Exactly, the latter. So it was more like realising who was creating this but then I start to see other filmmakers kind of try and do it in, as well. So like in the 80s, you know, The Never Ending Story came out and all the different uh, animatronics and the different characters there um, were happening. Those were really affecting me too. But I was trying to, as I did research, I was like, who actually started this? Who really got into this and made it happen? And it's obvious that they were all influenced by what he was doing. And then, of course, 
as Clash when Clash of the Titans came out, it was just a big deal because those characters were very driven that he created, um, you know, from mythology. And so that really affected me too. And I saw the potential of what could happen with Interesting, that. Interesting, Elizabeth. You mentioned never-ending story. Colin Arthur, who's a special effects makeup artist and worked on never-ending story and Doctor Fives in 2001, worked with Ray Harryhausen on Eye of the Tiger. Ah. So it's quite a small pool of talent. It's all of yes. the sort of special effects, the physical sort of special effects world. Right. Actually, the physical special effects is what I absolutely love. So when it comes to... Um, certain films like uh, The Howling, for example. Um, I used to be a fan, when laser discs were out, I used to be a fan of like watching the B footage of the you know prosthetics and the visual effects designers trying to put this creature together and then trying to get it to explode and then a, a balloon would burst and they'd be like, we have to do another take, you know. So I'd always be watching that constantly and then I would just be looking for films where it's like, is there any extra footage on how they created this creature, the movie, the thing, you know, how did they do that? It's incredible, you know, all of the visual that's coming out of it. You know, the head being taken off and then with the legs coming out. It's almost like puppetry, isn't it? Absolutely it is. And I know all of that was inspired from Harryhausen. So there's so many artists that are inspired, and people, in my opinion, are very much into the visual aspects. They will watch a movie like The Thing. They will watch a movie like Clash of the Titans. They will watch a movie like The Howling or The NeverEnding Story and just be like, wow, what is that? But if you show them a film that's like that with computer-generated and just like craziness, no stimul- no work for our brain to do whatsoever, I think it's more of like, ah, and then they look back down at their phone and just kind of see what's going on. But when there's actual visual elements happening, such as in Bram Stoker's Dracula, and you have a person going against a wall, and then all of a sudden they turn into a bunch of real rats and run around, I actually think that's inspired from Harryhausen, because there's all sorts of imagery that he was really promoting with his creatures. Interestingly, though, you mentioned about the, the, the fights between the new and the old there, you know, new technology and old CGI versus... And the market tells us and dictates to us that, you know, CGI goods, old school bad, colour good, black and white bad, of course. And so we're here at Comic-Con, which the perception is lots of very young, interesting people in fabulous costumes seeing the very latest films, whether it's the Marvel Universe or the other spectacular universes. So um, how does something quite old school like Harryhausen fit into that? And of course, you came to the the Harryhausen panel. I mean, how how does it go and uh, how are you involved? Yesterday's panel was a lot of fun. Um, I was there to help uh, do some videography and some shooting, uh, along with my uh, assistant, Steve Robles, who did a great job of photography. Um, Really cool to see uh, all of the people there. The first panel was all different age ranges. So you have like young people to people in their 20s and 30s. And all of them, I felt, were very riveted by your presentation, um, listening to you talk about what you found, um, all of them really into seeing what could potentially happen. When they heard about you know, the potential of what may happen in regards to projects, I heard they were excited about that. Um, and in the end, it was just about this, this awe. There was an overall awe. It wasn't like, oh, cool, this is going to be, you know, let's talk about the next Marvel film. It was more of just like, this is something different, but it seems like it should be coming back. So that was the impression I got. The second panel was very much like that. There was a lot of people who were over 40, I think, that were in that one. And um, they were all very riveted, and I could hear a lot of just, you know, wow, it's coming when they saw the images and the posters. And um, people were very responsive. I didn't see one person in the audience actually going, this is boring and I'm not interested. Because all of the color art that you were showing and all of the different types of, you know, um, characters in the, in the film that you showed that you did the documentary on, um, everyone could connect with what Ray was saying, and it was so great that we had that footage of Ray talking. These are the eyes of the tiger. Follow their gaze back, back to where legends first began. I'm at Comic-Con, and I'm with Greg Coulon. And Greg, you have a specific sort of relationship with Ray Harryhausen. Tell me about that. Well, I've been a, a fan of Ray's films since, actually, before I can remember. You know, people ask me when I saw, for the first time, a Ray Harryhausen film, and I honestly don't know because... Uh, I grew up in the Cleveland area, and the films were broadcast all the time. And before I ever knew who Ray Harryhausen was, I was familiar with pretty much all of his black and white films and and many of his color films. probably wasn't until Famous Monsters of Filmland that I first read about and and connected Ray Harryhausen, the name, to the the films that I loved. And it was amazing how many of my favorite films were Ray Harryhausen films. 
And you're wearing so, a fantastic Famous Monsters um, tribute shirt. And is that, an edition, is that an original sort of edition that came that, out with the Cyclops on it? That is. This is a cover um, from, I think it's number 27, um, the original. It's a green Cyclops, so it doesn't quite fit uh, the reality of the situation. But uh, Cyclops has always been uh, probably my favorite Harryhausen character. So, you know, over the years I eventually got to, to meet Ray on several occasions and go to his house and talk to him and, and meet him at conventions when he would come here and in the, uh, you know, the, the States, and uh, it, it was always great to talk to him and, and Diana over the years. So today, you know, saying that you like science fiction and dressing as your favorite character is considered to be, you know, part of the run of the mill. Years ago, there was very few magazines. Famous Monsters was kind of the, the premier magazine for covering this. There was never conventions. You couldn't dress in the streets as your favorite characters as a superhero. Um, things have changed a lot, Greg, haven't they? Oh, it, it, it's a completely different world. I mean, uh, you could maybe, uh, the earliest conventions I remember were very small ones where you could buy an old issues of comic books or maybe find an old famous monsters or so, but there were no guests, there were no costumes, there were eh, pretty much nothing. And then at some point the Star Trek conventions started to become a little more popular and, and you could actually find, uh, start finding some stills from Harryhausen films. There, I probably bought my first still for tw- from 20 million miles to Earth at a Star Trek convention, I think. Oh. These would have been industry stills, wouldn't they? So they wouldn't have been available in shops. That's right. That's right. They would, they would have been press stills that somebody got a hold of uh, from a publicity department or something or sent to a newspaper that, uh, that uh, no longer needed it and somehow got into private hands. And, uh, and it was great to find those kinds of things. So I, I started collecting way back in the uh, mid-'70s, I guess, uh, on Ray Harryhausen. And I, as my wife would tell you, I haven't stopped <laughs> But interestingly, you say, of course, um, these things were used by newspapers. They would have been put into a bin. They would have been thrown away after the film has come out. So much like a disused cornflake packet, once people have finished with it, it just goes in the trash. So you've really rescued these items. In uh, a way. Uh, many of them, yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because some you could find them date-stamped and held in archives for years, and then eventually they, they were found. I've been able to find things like contact sheets from the photographer's proofs over the years, things like that, that probably were only two or three prints were ever made of um, before they, uh, you know, who knows if the negatives even exist anymore. And, uh, and so it's great to find something like that and see a, a series of images that have never been, you know, finished or, or shown before. I mean, I had the honor of uh, uh, Ray actually looking through my collection at one point in time because he wanted to see some of my pieces on O'Brien. And uh, he, he, he was just, uh, he couldn't, he didn't even know that there were that many publicity stills from some of these films that were put out there. Because the studios, of course, would limit it, wouldn't they? If they, they wanted certain looks or certain film styles pushed forward, they might only send two or three versions of the front of house sets. Yeah, that's right. There, there might be three or four hundred or three or four thousand photos taken on the set for a film like Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and then there'd be maybe a hundred that became official studio stills, and then out of that there'd be a set of you know fifteen or twenty that was the common ones that were sent out to most of the newspapers eventually. So. So there was a real control, wasn't there? So even with um, Famous Monsters magazine, if they were very critical of a film, then a studio probably wouldn't allow them to reproduce stills. And and even up until recent times, like the the 70s with um, Starlog magazine, there there was a sense that you had to be kind to films that were coming out. So if it was a film like Saturn 3 or or Meteor, which, which, which kind of landed with real thuds, when I look back at old issues, the magazines are quite careful not to not to really rip them apart. Oh, I think that was very true. As, and and well, obviously, famous monsters, um, Forey and Ray being friends, there was always a positive story there. Um, uh, some magazines eventually took a different turn and started going down a path where they would want to tell more salacious stories about movies and that. And I think. Uh, yeah, the, the, I have heard stories where they, they stopped giving them stills or production information or that just because of the tone. But in general, I think race films were always well-received, if, if, if only for the visual effects. But, I mean, in so many cases, they had, honestly, great, uh, you know, great performers and great musical scores and so many things to recommend them. So it was, it was always, I think, most of the magazines were usually pretty kind to race films. And, and I think the time has only shown that, that that's been well-deserved, right? Absolutely. Now, you've been working with us on our new um, Ray Harryhausen, The Lost Films. And in that book, of course, we're going to be featuring the films that he didn't make, um, the films he was asked to work on and and wasn't able to, but also scenes from his existing films that either had something taken away or was removed before filming or after filming. And and you've shown us some pretty unusual stills. Tell us about what you found. 
Well, uh, some of the things we found was uh, most people wouldn't know that, uh, that Peter Mayhew actually had two roles in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Um, everybody, or many people I'm listening to this podcast know that he played the Minotaur before he played Chewbacca in Star Wars, but um, he also played the Trog. And uh, I think there's only one very, very long shot that sits in the final film, um, because Ray personally told me that they, the, the live-action scenes they filmed with Trog, uh, primarily when they first encounter him, uh, did not match right. And I think the, the suit was very bulky and hard to match, but it's a, a, we found some really excellent uh, old photos um, from the set with, uh, with Peter in the Trog costume confronting you know, Patrick Wayne and the rest of the crew. So those are the kinds of things that are just wonderful to see and, uh, and, and find out that these, these scenes had been filmed but never, never quite made it to the, uh, to the final print. So now we have those wonderful stills that you rescued. It would be wonderful now to actually find some of the footage to see if there are any negative trims around it would, it would be wonderful if anybody could ever pull that out and see how it worked. So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Ray's got it hidden somewhere, but to look through through all the film sheets. It's interesting right. because the face on Trog, it had a quite a sort of a Jim Henson creature shop look about it, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Mm-hmm. I thought it looked fantastic. It's, it's a nice sculpt, um, but it doesn't look like the, the finished Trog, right? So clearly Ray did some other things, and it doesn't have the horn. So it's, it's kind of interesting to, to see that. Now, Ray's, some of Ray's original art for Trog didn't have the horn either, so at some point in time, I, I don't know where he, he decided to add it in, but um, it obviously seems like it was, a, it was a decision that was made after the filming of at least some of the live-action sets. I wonder if it's because the man in the suits looked like a man, one of you was trying to separate it away from that, so by adding something else, yeah, so it, it makes it seem more Neanderthal and more monster-like to actually add something. Exactly, to make it look a little bit different. Yeah, and also there, there were some other shots as well. That um, there was another character in the film that was played by a performer. What can you tell me about the baboon? Oh, the baboon. Well, that, there was a there was actually um, a, a costume for the baboon. Most people would know it. It never hit any of the publicity photos. But uh, I don't know, again, if, it's, if there's any footage that actually shows it. But, uh, but it was used in many cases to interact with the actors. I think it was used for rehearsals. Um, it may have been used for some very quick shots that they, they had tried to get it where, where it was a far shot. But uh, there are several stills exist the, um, with the... Uh, the live-action baboon interacting with some of the performers, or in the cage, on the uh, you know in the, in the deck of Sinbad's uh, ship. That's so. right. You can see it just as they, they throw on that rug and take off that rug. Yes. And after he goes back into the cage, after Zenobia's um, the Tyrone power goes up and strokes him, and you just about see the um, the live-action suit. That's works, right. I think it works really well. But as you say, it's very small. Uh, that's right. You, of it. You have to and, be careful. And and. Yeah, and it's obviously, you look at the photos, and it's not the kind of thing that you would have been able to ha- hold in a close-up for, uh, for several seconds, right? It's the kind of thing that you, you need in the darkness or in the back or, or a very quick shot. But it's, it's very interesting, and Ray was, uh, was able to save money, I'm sure, with many of the, uh, the ways that he did these films, right, to, uh, to, to make it real. Right? So it's quite a sort of a, a delicious prospect that there are things have been films like potentially you know more footage of, of the baboon suited person than mm-hmm. the trog suited actor um, and in Clash of the Titans of course as he said in my short documentary he shot tests of Pegasus with just the legs hanging and the wings flapping hmm. um, but it didn't work out you know so I'd love to get some of those camera tests to see what, a, what they look like so those trims those neck trims are somewhere so I'm hoping that we might uncover them that would be great to find some, someone somewhere probably has some of those and, and it would be wonderful to see it now, other things that Connor has found on the script for Clash of the Titans at the end, in the, one of the original drafts, Pegasus was to have been torn in half by the Kraken hmm. and thrown into the sea. The skeleton sequence in Jason the Argonauts was also meant to be in the originally set at night, not during the daytime. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of these sort of areas where things have been slightly changed or do exist but in a slightly different form. Um, do you know of any kind of uh, myths around Ray's films that what should have been in or what wasn't and how it could have been? Well, the, the one I, I always thought of is the holy grail of, of a film that everybody wants to see, um, if it exists, was the, uh, the shot of... Uh, Ray had said that there was a shot that he had done for Jason in the skeleton fight, where, where the skeleton that had its head lopped off is crawling on its hands and knees looking to find the head. And I've always just wanted to see that. And I, I actually asked Ray about it one time, and he did say he filmed it. Um, I asked him if we would ever see it, and I, I can't recall the comment he made, but I'm sure it was something along the lines of who, who knows where a piece of film like that would, would be. 
So the censors actually asked for that to be taken out. So it was right mm. up until the cutting copy. It may have been in one of the original answer prints, mm. um, but before it went to theatres as a married print, that, that, that had gone. So I spoke to Grover Crisp at Sony Pictures, mm -hmm. who's the restoration expert there, and he tells me that in the Sony archive there are no trims. So for films that are pre-1970s, there's no, no trims or outtakes, um, as they're sometimes called. So it doesn't mean they don't exist, but it's just in the Sony archive there are no trims or outtakes. Oh, that's a shame. Um, so they may be with us. Um, we have to have a look at everything because Connor has found that as he's looked through some of the boxes and some of the film cans, they're not correctly labelled. Um, so we scanned some footage that should have been one film and it was in fact something else. Um, but we found some, some really tantalising um, special effects test footage of, of things like Pegasus from, from Clash of the Titans. Oh, those, those would be great to see. Yeah. I mean, you, you can see um, uh, very, it seemed to me very rare that a footage ray shot didn't make it into the film, you know, other than maybe the, the ending and the beginning of the shot. Um, but you can see in a few trailers, like the Jason and the Argonauts trail, there's a scene from the skeleton fight, um, long shot of the, you know, the seven skeletons fighting the men. And uh, that's, that's in the trailer and not in the film, right? And I don't know, there's a gauge shot pops up in that shot. Maybe that's the reason it was cut. But it's just, it's just wonderful to find some of those things that uh, you hadn't realized before. When you say gauge, you mean the surface gauge, a that surface would have been gauge, the flash yes. frame. So, yes, you and can. the surface gauge would have been used to to sort of measure the the, uh, the distance between one move and the other. Exactly. Yeah. And every once in a while, you see uh, a film where they're they're still in there. I I have to tell you, there's probably a pet peeve of mine is that when they digitize so many of Ray's films, I love to find the surface gauges. Right. I mean, it's, it's, some of us just love to see that. And uh, I remember. Uh, a, a beautiful print screening of Seventh Voyage some years ago um, that we saw. I think Nathan Duran did the introduction to it. And unfortunately, I had to say at the end of the print, I just missed the gauges. You know, they had cleaned them up. And, and I think Ray liked, you know, that they cleaned up the gauges. And he would obviously have done that in the past. He, I guess, always marked the film so that they were to, were to be removed when he knew he did it, and they didn't always get corrected. But uh, it's kind of a, a nice thing to catch in the old days. It, dates back to, you know, even before King Kong, you can catch gauges in films. He did ask me whether they were doing the HD scan for Jason for the first mm -hmm. Blu-ray. Um, he said that uh, he's been offered the opportunity to take the, uh, the strings from some of the Harpy sequence yes. because he said it wasn't noticeable on Laserdisc or VHS or, or DVD, but for Blu-ray it shows up everything. Yeah. And I said to him, oh, and did you say no? He said, no, no, I said yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And he said, do you think I should have said no? And I said, well... I if it was me, I'd remove scratches, of course, and make yes. the film more stable, of course, and add stereo sound and clean things up. But I, I wouldn't remove strings. Um, I'm a great believer in it. If the strings are there, then leave the strings. I, I, I'm a bit of a conservationist myself, an archivist. I, I love to see the old material, and, and it always kind of bothers me, honestly, a little bit when I see people changing the history, right? And I'd rather see it the way it was meant to be, or not, not so much the way it was meant to be, the way it originally was, you can't understand the history of special effects if everybody is digitally redoing the uh, the effects scenes in their films. I mean, someone might make the case in some years downstream to uh, re reproduce digital creations or add motion blur to the Cyclops, and that's a film I don't want to see. Well, what did, what did you think of the colorized versions? Because Ray's black and white films were colorized. I thought they did a really nice job with those, and it, and I actually had some conversations with Ray about about that while they were doing them, while they, they were in the midst of that, and. And I enjoy them, but honestly, I still watch the black and white films. And, and I'm so glad that they, when they remastered, they, they gave you the choice. Look at the color film or look at the black and white film. And I'm glad to have that choice. And, and I, I kind of really find the color interesting um, and enjoyable sometimes, but I'll, I'll watch the black and white when I'm by myself. Now, you mentioned about um, sequences that were cut. Did you know in there's two Clash of the Titans trailers, and, and it's the one that has all of the... Uh, um, that sort of Superman pop star effect where it goes with animations around and mm -hmm. um, there's a scene of the Kraken coming out of the water that's not in the, the, in the final print as well. Oh, I guess I hadn't noticed yeah, that one. Yeah, so if, if you track down um, it's the first of the two trailers for Clash of the Titans, one that's not on DVD but it is online on okay. the Warner Brothers YouTube channel and you can see, yeah, the, the You'll notice it when you see it because it sticks out like a sore thumb. There's this kind of awkward turn that the Kraken does. Interesting. Out of the water. I'll, have, I'll have to check that. Yeah, and I've checked with Colin Arthur as well. He doesn't know about trims or anything, but it was the large Colin Arthur foam uh -huh. that, that came up. Um, lastly, Greg, if I can ask you, is there anything that you would like to find that's out there that's Harryhausen related that you haven't got yet in your collection? <sighs> and my second part is the question, what's, your, what's the jewel in your crown of your collection? Oh, oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, to, to me, I, uh, 
I, I'm very interested in, in the films that never got made, right? The, the pieces of, of art that were um, done for a film that couldn't quite get financed. So that, that would be the, the things that I'd, I'd most interesting find. And um, uh, the jewel in my collection, uh, it, it, it probably goes along with that in some respects, is uh, um, well, in some cases I'll say I, I, I've been a fan of Willis O'Brien, and, and I, I think I've got some Willis O'Brien art in my collection. That's, that's the highlight um, of, of where my interest is. But um, it's like picking your favorite child. It's it, very it, difficult. It, 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 it is yeah. very difficult to do. I have yeah. I have a really interesting piece that, that Ray did um, that was published in a in a Forry Ackerman fanzine in, in 1940, and uh, and and it's kind of a uh, it's it's kind of a Ray's piece of science fiction art with a uh, almost a, a science fiction head with a body with with you know mechanical feet. That's that's very interesting. And uh, that that might be the the jewel there from the Harryhausen standpoint. It's it's just a very different design than what you normally see Ray did. Um, matter of fact, it's 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 from a book where this Ray's artwork is on the other side of it as well. And when I first showed it to Ray, even though it was a published drawing, he didn't quite recognize it. But when he turned it over, it's got a um, Allosaurus that's that Ray did, patterned after the famous um, Charles Knight painting. And as soon as he saw that, he's like, Oh yes, I remember that. And, and it's also got a little Kong and a little dragon, and uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of a special piece, seeing how, how talented he was at such a young age. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Greg, thanks very much, and hopefully we'll see you at next year's 2019 Comic-Con when we're going to be back with our book, Ray Harryhausen, The Lost Films. I'm looking forward to it. Where fantasy is real and the land of the lost is rediscovered. So enthusiastic comments there, uh, Connor. It's great to meet people who we would never have got to meet otherwise but through the connection of Ray Harryhausen. Um, Really talented people like Elizabeth and enthusiastic collectors, very serious collectors such as as Greg. Um, It really is one of those places, Comic-Con, isn't it? Although it's really, really busy the the goodwill is is 100% there was no pushing no shoving there was no aggro at all was there it's a wonderful atmosphere um a really nice place to go for people who are are interested in in this kind of genre entertainment and as you as you mentioned fans like elizabeth and like greg really they represent the the different spheres of influence that Ray's had over the years. So somebody like Greg, who who got to meet and, and got to know Ray over the years, and has a vast collection of material relating to his films, to to a young uh, filmmaker like Elizabeth, who's been inspired by Ray and uh, was inspired to get in touch with us and off, offer her uh, assistance in our photography and recording at Comic Con. So we're very grateful to to both. And to Steve Robles as well for his help with the, the videography and getting to chat with Ray's fans in California really was fantastic. Whenever we mentioned Ray's name to somebody and explained why we were at Comic Con, people's eyes lit up and we were regularly told about how much his films had influenced, as we always are, as much as people are always keen to tell us just how much they love Ray's films and how much he continues to inspire them. And San Diego Comic Con is the perfect place to catch up with fans of a similar nature. And probably the best example of that was we went to someone else's panel. It happened to be about stop motion. And Connor, you stood up and asked the question and got an applause for the question that you asked, which was incredibly sweet and endearing. And everyone's going to wonder, what was that question? So what, what was the panel? It was a mixed stop motion panel, wasn't it, with uh, um, recently uh, retired filmmakers and some active filmmakers, all all kind of lamenting uh, the... the, the uh, the early demise of stop motion about 10 years ago and now are celebrating its return. But you, you asked him a particular question, didn't you? That's right. It was um, Stephen Chiodo from the, the famous Chiodo brothers who are um, incredible stop motion animators. And I was quite interested uh, on, a, on a professional, on a personal level, on their own collections. So how their models had survived over the years following projects that they worked on. And very sadly, it is quite difficult for many stop motion animators to keep a hold of of models and and things that they've worked on over the years just because of the the nature of the industry and it it does just cast light on how incredible Ray Harryhausen's collection actually was because unfortunately many creators like him were unable to keep any of the the artifacts from their long and varied film careers and to have 50,000 items packed with some of the most 
famous special effects creations of all time amongst a heap of lost treasures um, is, is just a wonderful resource and an incredible thing to be able to share with fans. So you didn't answer my question, so I'm going to tell everyone. You stood up and you said, oh, hello, I'm, I'm from the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. I have a question to ask. And people just burst out into applause. Um, so, Well, that's, yeah. that's true. I wasn't looking for an applause. I just happened to mention, just to, to give a little context to my question. But as you say, it, it gives an insight into just how warmly Ray is remembered by, by fans of film. You weren't looking for the applause I was. <laughs> so I thought it was great that he stood up and got that reaction. So that was marvellous. And of course, people in the room then came up to us afterwards and said, well, we came to your talk or we're sorry you missed your talk and so on. So it, it's a great sort of environment within which to... Uh, you know, to feel loved and to give love and so on. Um, we're going to come back to um, Greg Coulon and his collection and how it relates to us. But um, uh, we have a, an interesting announcement to make about a special honour for Ray Harryhausen, Connor, don't we? That's right. Ray has been nominated for the Visual Effects Society Hall of Fame and he's going to be inducted this year um, alongside other luminaries such as Derek Meddings, Saul Bass and Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. So a lot of big names there and Ray stands out amongst them as one of the one of the honorees to the Visual Effects Society's Hall of Fame. Now when we when we announced this a couple of fans asked why Ray hadn't been nominated for this before. In fact this is only the second year that the Visual Effects Society have earned their Hall of Fame awards and so appropriately Ray was one of the first names on their list and they reached out to us and asked um, if we'd be interested in, in attending the ceremony and there should be some news on that very soon on the on the date and location of the ceremony and when that's publicly released we'll have some special uh, special events and special posts on our Facebook and Twitter accounts to, to commemorate this honour and it's very appropriate that Ray should be awarded this uh, incredible honour. Interestingly, Derek Meddings uh, mentioned there, so between the uh, Super Mario Nation, the kind of and Jerry Anderson puppet style, and uh, Dynamation, the Ray Harryhausen coined interaction, very similar folks. You know, Derek Meddings worked either in a small team or on his own. Uh, he used practical effects and an in-camera effects that so did as much in-camera as possible, so much like Ray Harryhausen. I was recently watching the 4K rest- restoration of Moonraker, which is one of my favourite Bonds. And, and and surprisingly, one of the most successful Bonds up to that point was Moonraker. And the effects really hold up fantastically well. Um, a lot of backwinding in the camera, a lot of masking off, and also that there wasn't uh, any generational loss by putting the film through processes such as optical printers and so on. Um, so I think it's really nice that Derek Meddings is being honoured alongside Ray, they very much liked each other. In fact, they appeared in John Landis's film Spies Like Us, along with Terry Gilliam, in a, in a big tent sequence where they were all doctors. Um, so very nice that um, that the late Derek Meddings is being honoured there as well. So, um, well, good luck with that ceremony, Connor. I won't be with you, but I'll, I'll certainly be with you in spirit. And, uh, you know, I think it's marvellous that, uh, that they're inducting Ray. Yes, quite right. And um, I'm sure it's going to be a, a wonderful evening. Now, in terms of other news, John, uh, you've teased it, so I think you you need to say a little more about the latest book project because hot on the hot on the heels of Harryhausen, the poster art, we have another special book lined up with Titan Books. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I can. I can officially announce that Harryhausen, the Lost Movies or Lost Films, depending on your um, preference there and um, will be out this time next year so we are fully underway we have been for a few months now but we we've been embargoed from talking about it and you might think oh well hang on I know that didn't he want to make War of the Worlds and he didn't and didn't he want to do Force of the Trojans and it never happened yeah I know all that well that's what you think as Connor said earlier the more we look into the world of Ray Harryhausen the more we realize we don't know the full story so the book uh, which is going to have some fabulous art that you do know and lots that you've never seen before, some by Ray and some by other very well-known artists, um, is going to be in three sort of main areas. So the films Ray planned to make, such as uh, War of the Worlds and Force of the Trojans that he didn't make, they will be in there. Uh, Scenes from the films he did make that were deleted or amended or changed, they will be in there. And I think you'd be quite surprised at... um, 
what could have happened as a pre-title sequence to Clash of the Titans, what could have befell Pegasus at the end of Clash of the Titans, what really wanted to happen in the middle of uh, Golden Voyage of Sinbad. We have sketches, we have artwork, we have interpretations. And then the third area are the films Ray was offered that he had to turn down, uh, such as uh, King Kong he was offered more than once by different studios at different times by different people. And what we're doing here today is we're asking the fans if they'd like to be part of this. Now, Greg Coulon's really played a key role for us by supplying um, images, both artwork and photography, that do not exist in the Foundation's archive or not in the high quality that they are in Greg's archive. Um, we're asking you, the listeners, to be involved with us. If you have something you think that would be appropriate for the lost films of Ray Harryhausen and you'd like to include it in the book, then you'll get a free copy of the book. You'll get a credit on the page where your item has been uh, has been shown. And uh, you can contact us directly about that, uh, can't they, Connor? Yes, that's right. Um, if you, similar to the poster book last year, we've set up a special email address for this latest book project. And if you contact us at lostfilms at rayharryhausen.org.uk with any interesting information that you may have on these projects that that never quite surfaced, then please do get in touch. We'd be delighted to hear from you and to to learn more about your collection. Um, As you heard with the interview with Greg Coulon, fan collections are a really incredible um, insight for us into items that we may not have within our collection. And it just goes to show you sort of the breadth of work that Ray carried out throughout his career that um, there's 50,000 items here, but there's still more out there that we haven't seen yet. And so if you have anything that you think may be of interest, even anecdotes or photographs or things that you think we may not have seen, then please do get in touch. Absolutely. It's easier for you to contact us and we say, no, we've got that. Um, or yes, please, can we have that? Um we have other well-known artists that did concept art for Ray's films that have never been seen. And one in particular is being completed by a well-known artist because he only got halfway through it at the time. So in previous publications, there's been a few sketches and a sort of a brief idea of, of what the missing films could have been. But this will be a definitive tome which will have everything in it, we hope, and some very high-quality art and the likes of which have never been seen on the page before. And this time next year, hopefully, we'll be inviting you all to different screenings for Ray Harryhausen's Lost Films and showing you some interesting test footage. Some of you may have seen some of it. You haven't all seen all of it um, because myself and Connor have recently scanned footage um, with Final Frame in London um, that hasn't been seen for, for over 30 years. So there's always something new to be found. And it's a revelation, isn't it, Connor? Every time, every time we go to the, uh, the well of Ray Harryhausen, we get soaked with more treasures. Well, yes, and I think fans are going to be astounded by what they eventually see in this new book. Uh, there, there is such a vast collection of footage here from Ray's, Ray's own VHS collection, its Betamax collection, and the films that he held onto. And as you mentioned, uh, we, we've had some of this uh, experimental footage scanned recently and really wonderful to see uh, just to see aspects of his filmmaking process which I've probably never been seen before so you'll be able to reveal some of this in the book and it's been a real pleasure to to work upon the research for this. As always I can't do it without your help Connor and so to remind everyone it's lost films all one word lost films at rayharryhausen.org.uk now, in our last episode, we, we put a little teaser in for a major exhibition which will be taking place in the summer of 2020. Uh, and since that episode was released, we can now officially announce that the largest exhibition of Ray Harryhausen's work will be taking place at the National Galleries of Modern Art in Scotland, in Edinburgh, from May 2020 to October. So, four months, large-scale exhibition... Um, in Edinburgh in, in the National Gallery of Modern Art, which is an incredible building. And for the first time, Ray's entire archive will be accessible. So whilst there was a number of wonderful exhibitions throughout Ray's lifetime, uh, we now have everything together and it's all been archived in one place. And you'll be able to see 
items from throughout Ray's life, from his very earliest creations, right the way through to projects he was working on just uh, 10 years ago or so. So it's going to be an incredible exhibition. We're going to mark Ray's centenary and further details to be announced. But mark that date in your diary for your summer holidays in two years' time. Uh, get your flights prepared and, and, and get ready because this is going to be something incredibly special. It is indeed. And as we lead up to the preparations for this mega exhibition, we'll be speaking to some of the creative people involved, both at the museum and the external people who will be coming in to create a pretty unique vision. So as as Connor was saying, if you think you've seen the collection before, well, thank you for coming. But please now see what will hopefully be the definitive collection with many unseen items and displayed in a way that's uh, I think a real tribute to one of the giants of cinema in his centenary year. That's right so we will be updating you in the Ray Harryhausen podcast over the years to come but suffice to say make your plans for the summer of 2020 it's going to be something special. Up next we have a preview of a very special interview which we conducted with Mark Gatiss actor, director, writer of The League of Gentlemen, Doctor Who, Sherlock and so many other classic television shows, books and movies. Uh, Mark is also a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen. Now we're going to play the full interview in a special one-off episode soon. We're going to play you a clip relating to yet another project which Ray Harryhausen was offered and asked to work upon. Because as Mark reveals, the League of Gentlemen asked Ray if he would consider animating on their 2005 film, The League of Gentlemen's Apocalypse. Now, for those of you who've seen the film, there was a a wonderful stop-motion sequence in the movie. And as Mark reveals, they turned to Ray and asked him if he would consider animating one final time on The League of Gentlemen's Apocalypse. Let's hear what Mark had to say now and look out for the full interview coming soon. Yes, it's true. Well, of course, we, we wanted to have a stop-motion monster in it. So what else would we do but ask Ray Harryhausen? I mean, I, I knew he was basically long retired, but you you never know. <laughs> I'm always doing this. You never. There's no harm in asking. So uh, we, we wrote to him, and um, we had this, we've got this sequence. And I mean, it was obviously a ridiculous long shot, but we thought we couldn't really let rest if we didn't do it. And then um, I met him at the Empire Awards, which must have been about 2004 or five. Um, and, uh, you know, I knew his voice so well from all the documentaries. He sounded the way I, I want, uh, God should speak, I think. Uh, he was very, uh, he was like, he said, oh, you, uh, you, 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 you asked me to do your picture. Uh, 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 it sounded a bit like Jimmy Stewart. It was something, I love that sort of slightly hesitant, like his voice was like hickory. Hickory Wood. Oh, I, well, I, I, I'm very flattered, but I, I've, I've long since retired. <laughs> but obviously, I mean, God, it was like touching the hem of his garment was so thrilling. Um, and it, it was, it was very, very sweet. And I, again, I just gushed and said, like, which he, what he must have heard it five, every five minutes, which is that he sort of made my childhood and all our childhood. So, um, so we did in the end. Um, a company called McKinnon Saunders did our two. We had two. We had a, we had a three-headed monster and a sort of homunculus, uh, and, and then they were done with stop motion. So it was our little nod to uh, to Ray's legacy. I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world, with a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. And now to finish off, let's hear from Ray Harryhausen himself from my 1989 shot, but 1990 released. Ray Harryhausen Movements into Life, where he discusses the influence of Gustave Doré and a film that could have been that never was. And until next time, thank you very much, and I look forward to receiving your emails. Classical mythology, science fiction, Arabian Nights, and for some time he pondered the idea of bringing Dante to the screen. Some time ago I wanted to uh, um, uh, make a film about Dante's Inferno because of Gustave Doré's marvellous drawings. But uh, in thinking it over, I wonder very seriously how many people can sit through an hour and a half of the vicissitudes of tormented souls. Ray has admired and studied Doré since he was a student. 
He was my mentor. I uh, based my style of drawing on Gustave Doré, and uh, I find that he has a great imagination. He was really the original art director for films, because most of the early filmmakers uh, studied his uh, drawings to a great degree for crowd composition. Cecil B. DeMille used to use them a great deal, and so did Marion Cooper and Willis O'Brien. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2018. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.